John, your stated purpose and passion from the outset of your message, I believe, was effectively transferred to the heart of everyone in attendance. And we are grateful to God for you and for that message. Thank you. Now, most of the pastors here, so you've made this wonderful, incredible call for this radical, risk-taking life. Most of the pastors here are laboring faithfully in the context of their local church, preaching faithfully in the context of the local church, caring faithfully for those who have been entrusted to them in their local church. They have been there years or desire to stay there for years, hopefully to die in their church, to follow the example of men like you who've had a ministry in one church over the decades. So for many of them, if not most of them, they're not going anywhere. For them, what does radical risk-taking sacrifice, what does that look like? Well, it'll look different for each of them, but, um, and one of the reasons it will be different for each is because what's hard for one to do is not hard for another to do that ought to be done. And so um, it's not hard for me to do what I just did. There's so much deep personal gratification in spending time in the Word and and preaching that uh, this is no sacrifice. So I, I don't count what I'm doing here as going outside the camp. It might be for you to spend the time it would take away. I mean, you're a people person. You know, you're one of these Myers-Briggs E people, and you get strength by being with people instead of being with a book. That, that might mean study more. Go deep. Work at it. Go against your grain. So that's one reason things look different. Circumstances are different. But the the principle is um, the camp is the place where it's comfortable, it's secure, it's relatively easy. And outside the camp is Golgotha and other things. And Jesus went outside the camp and then he tells us, take your cross and go with me. So... You all know what's hard for you to do in the cause of love. I'm not saying asceticism in an artificial way here. Create an ascetic thing like, you know, take a cold shower every morning. Um, (laughs) I mean, you have a neighbor and you're scared to talk to him. You have a colleague and that colleague needs to be confronted about some bad habit. It's annoying. You have a marriage problem and you've been running from it forever and Mm. you need to tackle it because it's Mm. going to be emotionally exhausting Mm. to do it. You read your Bible, you know, you read the Romans 12 with all the exhortations and you know that some of them are extremely difficult for you to do. So my prayer is that this message will help me mainly, I, I know what they are for me, some of them, Uh, to have more affection for the treasure, Christ, that 
At that moment, when your will uh, is locked into fear and locked into greed and locked into self-exaltation and you see a, a pathway that's costly but looks biblically right, there will be enough motive in the truths that I have seen that the Holy Spirit will take those truths and just go, and you'll do it. But I, I really think there are probably, in everybody's circumstance, some more or less really risky things to do. Really risky involvements in some causes that Christ has in the world. And, but especially, I, I think I'm thinking mainly evangelism. Mm -hmm. For myself, I am. Yeah, mainly evangelism. Mm -hmm. um, pastors run away from evangelism because mm -hmm. we believe it's not our gift. And we're to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. And yet we have ringing in our ears to Timothy, who did not have the gift of evangelism. He was timid. Do the work of an evangelist. So whatever it is, whether it's evangelism or the marriage or your children, you, you know, some of you are being, your kids tying you around their little finger. And you're afraid to deal with it. Especially if they're 14, you're afraid to deal with it because they could run. Um, and they're just tying you up because you don't have the courage to get on their case. And uh, tell them, you won't talk to her that way. We don't tolerate that in this house. You go to your room, I'll be there in a minute. You're just letting them run over you. You, you, you command them five times to do the same thing. Why? because you're sitting on the couch watching television and it's a pain in the rear end to get up and, and go spank them. We have to, to, to... Or, since I got applause on spanking, <laughs> some of you are so good at spanking, you've never touched your child's heart. Never! You haven't said anything to them that would open them like a flower. Because you, your mother wasn't that way, and you got beat up as a kid, and you're not about to change. Deal with it, kid. Instead of, how are you feeling? Talk to me about what's going on inside of you. So whatever's hard for you to do, I mean, the, the whole range of parenting and the whole range of marriage and the whole range of pastoring and the whole range of evangelism, all of it has hard stuff. And so this is a message to say, uh, find the hard stuff get satisfied in Jesus, find him sufficiently motivating, and enjoy the fellowship of his sufferings. Mm -hmm. Have you ever heard anybody say, while walking on the primrose path of sunshine, I discovered the deepest and most lasting fellowship with Jesus? Never! Never! You come to me after this if, if that's you. Always, always and without exception, and I've never heard anybody gainsay this, always and without exception, without exception, human beings say, I met him most, I went deepest with him, I enjoyed him, I saw more of him on my dark road, on my hard road. And so why would we not embrace commanded hard roads like evangelism or anything that will stress you. I, I prayed for my people. I'll stop with this one.
And oh, you no, jump in. No, this is your panel. No, 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 no. I want this to be give and take here. So, Well, no, I think we're leading Be this. authoritative, CJ. I am. I just went. I, I said it's. I, that was a mistake. We, we are serving you, and okay, I am going to be authoritative. Forget my train of thought here. Yep. Sorry. Just. Thank you for making it easy for me to be authoritative, but Thank I'd you. be authoritative even if you didn't make it easy for me to be authoritative. <laughs> See what? We're here to interview you and draw you out. Although I do Last want to say Sunday, Sunday I, I would, I, I dare anybody to come to you after this meeting and say to you that their deepest fellowship with Jesus has taken place in the midst of the primrose path of sunshine. <laughs> Just, I want to be there for it. So if you're going to do that... If you'd alert me ahead of time, I just want to watch what kind of fellowship takes place between the two of you. It would be so unusual for that to happen that it would be sort of like going outside the camp. Yeah. Well, that's, that's certainly calling them out, John. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Last Sunday, I prayed, because it was a sermon on evangelism, and I prayed somebody prayed it in the prayer room before the sermon and so I went up and prayed it in the in the people to the people I, um, God give us the same give us the emotions before the moment of evangelism that we have after the moment mm, excellent right. mm. <laughs> excellent because you all know what those emotions afterwards are mm. yes yeah, yes I'm real I opened my mouth. I had, a, I, I had a little tiny bit of Holy Spirit courage. And yes, and you sleep well. And yet before, I don't think this is my gift. And they might this and they might that. And this isn't the right time. And endlessly demonic excuses yeah. to avoid joy. Suicide. It's crazy. We're crazy. Mm. I am, anyway. Yeah. Chicken. Most of these guys are already in the process of preparing a sermon for this Sunday. If they were to meet with you for lunch, how would you counsel them about both the preparation process and the preaching event? Address both. Prepare us as pastors for the preparation process week in, week out and address the preaching event because we watch you and we are affected and amazed and I, I, we want to seize this time to learn from you. What are you doing in private in preparation that could be transferred that would make a difference? and what's taking place or what are you thinking about in the preaching event that could be transferred without in any way assuming that we can ultimately emulate the gifting in your life? Um, the most important thing I want to say in answer to that question is um, there isn't any technique to preaching. It's not a technique. It's not a profession that you go to a homiletics class to learn how to do. I, I just, the, your question is like temptation to go there, and I know you don't want me to go there, but that's not, God is doing sermon preparation when your throat is blazing with yellow puscules and you've got a fever and you feel like quitting. He's doing sermon preparation there.
Don't begrudge the seminary of suffering. Don't begrudge the marriage difficulties. Don't begrudge the parental stuff that's so hard. He's making you a preacher. He's making you a pastor. So the, the main preparation work is walking with him through it all and going deep with him and, and being there and not running away from it into endless food or television or get rid of the television. That would be a very practical thing to do. It would be get rid of your television so that you, you, have, you have some time, family time and, and reading time and reflection time and basically keep your mind free from so many we were talking about this pornography thing over lunch the other day, and we who are 60 were reflecting on how hard it was to get pornography when we were teenagers. And the implication of that is that in my brain, I have two pornographic images from my teen years. Found a Playboy in a laundromat, and they were passing a really weird book around in the locker room one day. I remember both of them like they were yesterday. Most of you have a thousand images in your brain. That really makes sermon preparation hard. However, not impossible. He died to purify our conscience our hearts, although you, you make your job a lot harder if you keep going to that cesspool. So I heard out of the mouth of R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur yesterday that neither of them has ever been on the internet for anything. <laughs> <laughs> They don't have it in their house. <clears throat> so, that's an interesting but they, way to... they do watch TV. What? They do watch TV. Do they? Yeah. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> so, back, back to the question. All of all all of that suffering. Keep your your mind from being contaminated because the preparation moment is a is a heart mind thing in which you're you're every three minutes maybe crying out to the Lord as you're reading your text Greek or Hebrew or English. You're reading it and you're saying, God, please, I've got to have a word. I've got to have a word for my people. Let me see what's really here. <clears throat> so that's the mind part, prayer for the mind part. It's got to be really here. I can't make this up. My people have to see it. I have to see it. I don't want to preempt. I, I want to, um, what's the word? I, um, I don't want to pull rank on these folks by quoting Greek. I don't see that. Well, believe me, it's there. <laughs> I don't want to do that. I want them to see what's really there. So I need to see what's really there. So I'm pleading with the Lord. Show me what's there, and then I'm pleading just as strong, help me to feel what's there. If, if it's a horrible thing, help me to feel horrible. If it's a beautiful thing, help me to feel thrilled over its beauty. Bring this dead heart into some kind of conformity 
moral conformity, affectional conformity to what's really there. Those are my two kinds of prayers, light and heat or whatever you want to call it because uh, if you try to work it up without the Holy Spirit giving it, people will know. They'll know. You people will know sooner or later. I don't think that was a real affection. That was planned. You know, that's... You don't want to go there. You don't want to play that game. If it isn't real, just beat Swedish. Or whatever. Just be blank. Just be... Just talk. And God will use the truth. So those thousand details I could say about the preparation moment as far as poking at the text, but the preaching moment is the same. You plead with the Lord. I do aptat, A-P-T-A-T, before I stand up. A, I admit, O oh Lord, that I can do nothing of any lasting value. P, I pray for self-forgetfulness, for fullness of the Holy Spirit, for love, for humility, for passion, for zeal, for prophetic utterance that may come to my mind while I'm preaching so that I can say things I hadn't prepared that might penetrate where nothing else would. I, A, P, T, I trust a particular promise from the Lord that I have found in my devotions early in the morning. So today I read Deborah's song in Judges 5, as well as Psalm 84, between 6.30 and 7 or so this morning, and pointed out a verse to Mark as we were sitting there. Oh, my soul, ride on in strength. was my word this morning the Lord gave a word from his word this morning right on it's strength so I take that that's my T trust so as I'm walking up I'm saying this is your work just come don't leave me here you've got to do something here I'm counting on you and he's saying I got this under control He's God. A-P-T-A, you act. You do it. you got to do it. Your hands are moving. Your voice is moving. you got to do this. Walking by the Spirit, putting to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, bearing the fruits of the Spirit is a mystery. Because it's, I worked harder than any of them. But it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. That's the mystery. So sermon preparation is you put out. When you're preparing and when you're preaching, you put out. But if you've prayed and done aptat and God is merciful, you won't be putting out. He'll be putting out. That's what it says. That's 1 Corinthians 15.10. A-P-T-A-T. And when you've acted and you go sit down, you thank him. That is going to do and is doing what he's going to do. And he regularly does more than you think 
He does because you will, at least I said this to the guys I met with the other night, I don't think after 28 years of preaching that I can correlate with any degree of confidence my sense of effectiveness in the moment and the true effectiveness of the moment. I, I don't, I just don't, I don't know any keys to know how to correlate those two, which keeps me from being too excited, that was good, or too depressed, total wipeout. Because the Lord will be sure to put me in my place if I do the one and lift me up if I do the other because he said, I'm working out there in ways you can't make happen at all. Nothing, you, you, you thought that was a good thing to say? That wasn't it. You missed it. That wasn't what did it. This thing over here that you didn't even know I gave you did it. And you'll find out in heaven that that happened. So. Excellent. So very helpful. Al, pick a track. <laughs> well, my first track is gratitude and thankfulness. Uh, the Lord has given you an incredible ability to... Uh, to reach the heart through your message. Amen. And uh, that happened to me as I was listening. I, I want to, uh, to also say that you said something very profound and very true. After you read the scripture, you said, this really doesn't require much exposition. It's true and it's not true. Well, in a sense, it's true. You know, there's just too little scripture being read in churches and being read too carelessly. And the way you walked us through just reading those texts was a sermon. We got two. Thank you for preaching the second sermon as well. But you actually took us through that. And I just wanted to, to just rejoice in that and also just encourage pastors. Learn how skillfully, and there, there was skill, unction, but there was skill, skillfully to read the biblical text. Um, I mean, there, there are points at which the Lord is just using you as an instrument to read the text. When you lift an eyebrow, all of a sudden, we think, yeah, that's it. That's it. And that's where it connects. So thank you. John, John let me tell you the difficulty I have in applying what you were saying. And maybe you can help me with it. In Hebrews 12, you know, we were looking at the hardship, endure hardship, his discipline. God is treating you as sons for what son is not disciplined by his father. If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Okay, so my response to that is I want to look around and I want to find the hardships that I'm enduring. But I don't know if, if it's a personality thing or a pastoral instinct. I think I, I, I it, it just innately tell anything that I go through that I think of as difficulty, I want to reinterpret it. I want to get that away. I don't want to think about that. I want to think of it as a good thing. And so when I turn around and look for difficulties, I've, I've told them all to leave by my, either by my constitution. You what? I've told them all to leave, to get out, even if, they're, even if somebody objectively would look at it and say, no, that's a difficulty. I've tried to think, make myself think of it as something that's not a difficulty. And yet you're calling me to be introspective, or the writer to the Hebrews is, in saying, look, you need to find these hardships as proof that you're a legitimate son. So... You ever run across any case like that in pastoral work? <laughs> sure, I am one. Um, and it, it's, um, I mean, I'm a Christian hedonist. 
I only do what makes me happy. So I get the same problem, right? Whether you're looking at it in the front or the back. Yeah. My theology is saying, get over the difficulty. Yeah. Now that, the reason I am one is because it's biblical to be that way. Okay? And the verse is, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. So there's the paradox. I mean, if it was only joy, it wouldn't be suffering. If it's no joy, it's not doing what Paul says. So you've got to do what you said. Now, I doubt that if the difficulty you faced were hard enough, you would completely, in retrospect, be able to convert it into only pleasure. pleasure. It would have its spiritual dimension of pleasure, yeah. but it... When, when they did that surgery or when, when that child walked away or when that marriage broke down or when that person slandered you, it remains painful. Otherwise, the whole thing breaks down. I mean, there's no, there's no outside the camp anymore. Yeah. There's no suffering anymore. There's nothing because we've got it all reinterpreted as, praise God, anyhow. And I'm not saying that. I'm, I'm saying it is really painful. It really hurts front and back. But... What you're trying to do seems to me exactly what Romans 5, 3 and Hebrews 12 says we're supposed to do, namely embrace it as God's design and good gift to you, painful as it is, working holiness in you and intensifying your love for the Lord and making you a better pastor and the list of benefits from suffering goes on and on if we'll have it so that you can actually say, okay, devil, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. I'm, brace, I'm embracing his intention. But goodness gracious, Joseph, what, 17 years or so? 13 years, I believe, before he really knew what was going to happen. So it's bad to worse to worse to worse, and then he's the vice president of Egypt, and now he can, can say, uh, okay, I see that, I rejoice in that, but <laughs> to be sold into slavery and to be lied about, to be kept in prison, didn't suddenly become pleasant. Does that help? Yeah. yeah. You don't look like it helped very much. Well, no, I'm still, I, I'm still thinking. I mean, these, these are great thoughts. I'll, I'll, I'll pray about it. I'll pray about it. Oh, That's a good answer. That's true. <laughs> Tell me when you get more discovery because I'm, I'm in the same place. Nick? Uh, uh, thank you, John. Uh, you are a theological F5 tornado in my soul. Um, um, Leaving devastation in Jackson, Mississippi. Gracious devastation. I, I, um, the Puritans were sometimes called um, in their preaching that they ripped up consciences, and I think that's why we're asking all these questions right now. A lot of times we'll say that good preaching does the counseling for you, and there's a truth to that. But sometimes good preaching starts the counseling, and we've already started counseling with our pastor here to try and find out how this message specifically relates to our own soul. But I mean, that, that's, I mean, it was, that's good preaching. It raises problems of conscience that you haven't had before, but you should have. And there are 5,500 different ways that that radical sacrifice is going to work out in this room. For some people, it will mean that they're going to pack up and they're going to go to Africa. Good. Thanks for saying that. Um, or they're going to go into an, an urban work 
out of their suburban setting for which they feel utterly unequipped in terms of all of their background and experience and connection with different types of people groups, and they're going to do that. For some people, it's going to mean staying in a church where they're preaching their hearts out, and the people are okay to have them there, but they're not really seeing the kind of fruit in their people that they so long to see, the dramatic changes, the embracing of this radical sacrifice in their lives. There are 5,500 different applications, but it, it was just so incredibly helpful to me. Thank you for your message. I think your explanation here, uh, as you were answering CJ, was actually very helpful because i, I got to tell you my problem with Hebrews 11, uh, Hebrews 11's problem with me. Uh, I, I look at this and I see, for instance, in verse, uh, verse 33, by faith conquered kingdoms, formed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. Then it goes on. Uh, women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release. Others experienced mockings and scourgings, chains and imprisonment, sawn in two, tempted. I, don't, I haven't known anybody yet sawn in two. I know I'll know some in heaven. I know you're exactly right. There are people right now who are suffering for the cause of the gospel. I think it's really difficult. It, it is for me. It is for me as president of the seminary, looking out at all these students. It is for me as... Ministering the church, looking at mostly middle-class people. I mean, what kind of suffering is the right kind of suffering? Um, there's, there could be an artificiality to this, but there has to be a willingness for this. But, uh, when we started having this conversation the other day, that's where yeah. I said to you, hey, look, you got a ton of books and nice things in your study, and I, I understand yeah. that. But I think those of us who've been around you for years have seen you go through all kinds of stuff. I don't just mean physical ailments, brother. I mean things because of the change of the seminary, ways that you have deliberately walked in places that you knew were going to be exceedingly unpleasant. It's not that you have a pugnacious personality. And and I didn't mean it only about me. I appreciate your counsel there. But I I just mean thinking about how I'm to encourage people whom I'm preaching and and, and serving. I I appreciate what Lig just said because I think one of the things... I'm so burdened for when I pray for the students on my campuses, I know a lot of them are going to go out and have a tough time. I mean, a very tough time. And exactly the kind of tough time you just talked about, Link, where you preach and you preach and you preach and you don't see anything. Uh, or you preach, you preach, you preach, and they say, thank you, you're fired. Yeah. Uh, you know, so, and all that, all I want to, I'm just thinking with you here. Uh, we got to be willing to be sawn in too. And, oh, and thank you for just demonstrating Stephen for us. You know, if, if I'm not willing to do that, I'm not worthy of the kingdom. Uh, but I think most of us are more likely to see suffering of a more frustrating kind, uh, uh, more about endurance. And then I do appreciate the fact that when you look at the text here, in verse 37, they were stoned, they were sawn in two, and then before it says they were put to death with the sword, it says they were tempted. You know, there's a lot of suffering going on in the temptations of ministry as well. Al, I've, I've been preaching through Philippians for about a year now. I was telling John before the conference started that I, I'll 
do my work and then I'll go back and I'll listen to his preaching from the Desiring God website. You've done a, a pretty extended exposition on kinds of suffering in the course of your work through Philippians that's on the Desiring God website. You've done it in different forms. Um, do you want to elaborate on some of the some of the ways of suffering that you talked about in that series, John? Because you, you're addressing this very question that you know that suffering just means taking a bullet or getting your head hacked off, and you you address everything from cancer to to the kinds of things you've been talking about earlier today with problems with your mother-in-law or your problems with your wife or problems with your children or problems with your elders or whatever else, and you. You, you, you make a great point in that message about how any kind of suffering can become suffering for Christ if you'll embrace it that way. Do you want to elaborate that? Well, I, no, that part of the question I, I, can, uh, I can remember about because it's, it's, a, it's a major issue that people will, if you, if you, pick, a, if you pick a text on suffering, um, and you try to apply it to cancer when it's dealing with persecution, most people, I mean, a lot of people, will say, I don't, think, I don't think that applies to me because that's really applying to, to getting, getting suffering from somebody hurting you or saying something evil. And, and so I have often developed a, an argument that uh, all suffering that a Christian endures in the path of obedience yes. is suffering with Christ and for Christ, though not in the same way. And th there are a couple of reasons for that. One is that in suffering, the temptation is the same, whether it's coming from cancer or slander. And the temptation is to say God is not good and it's not worth serving him and uh, escaping from this suffering in some sinful way is to be preferred. Those are the same. And so the real battle is the same, whether it's coming from a physical thing or another. The second thing is, I don't think historically you can draw a line between suffering from persecution and suffering from physical. Because if you just try to imagine a particular kind of Pauline persecution, like being whipped 39 lashes five times. Well, let's just take the third time. You've got to imagine what his back must have looked like. 39 times five is a lot. So it healed five times. So the third time his back is turned into jelly again. Now, they don't know anything about antibiotics. And they're done with him. Throw him on the floor. And his back is now covered with dirt. What happens when, when, you, when your back is lacerated and is covered with dirt? I'll tell you what happens. Infection happens. What happens when you get an infection? Fever happens. Now, which, which is the physical suffering here and which is the persecution suffering? How you, where are you going to draw that line between the fever and the lashes? Which is why I say that any fever experienced in the path of obedience, 
I'm getting my sermon ready. I'm making hard calls. I had to stay up late with the suicide situation and not enough rest. And I've got this awful sore throat. Tell me that's not the same suffering as being criticized for your ministry. It is the same essential suffering. And so I, I think I can develop textual and uh, thoughtful arguments for why almost all texts on suffering can help our people. Whether they're getting, whether their pain is coming from a difficult marriage or coming from slander or coming from cancer or coming from wherever. That's right. The the issue is in all suffering, will we trust him? We'll keep trusting him. Will we find in this some evidences of his sovereign mercy toward me? And the source of it is a very minor part when it comes to the real battle down here of will I trust him, will I hold on to him or not? Knowing you, John, and knowing your church, you you have devoted much time to addressing the topic of suffering and to preparing your church for suffering. Why and how would you recommend local pastors here do the same? Yeah, well, the why is because the Bible promises through many tribulations we will enter the kingdom and there are many such texts. It is a given that to come to Jesus is to compound your suffering, not minimize your suffering. Certain kinds of suffering get minimized. The suffering that comes from drunkenness will probably go down and and others. So don't hear me saying nothing changes and there's no benefits on the planet for just after the planet. That's not true. There are amazing reliefs, relief for conscience. A lot of psychological things will improve, but others will get worse. Especially if you're now in a marriage where one of you is a believer and one's not. That sort of thing. Um, remind me what I'm talking about. What was your question again? How do you I just lost the ball in the tall grass. Preparing what? your church for suffering. For suffering. Okay. Yeah. That's, thank you. Um, They will suffer. That's the first reason. And the second is because you see it out there. You see the little Down syndrome kids and you you see the people in the wheelchair and you see the painful marriages that are out there. You just, you see it and you're either going to (laughs) just ignore it or you're going to give them something to help. Um, And then third... I don't think Christ is glorified anywhere more than when suffering people rejoice in him as their treasure. I'm on the primrose thing again here. If, if everything's going rosy for all my people, the possibilities of us making a name for Jesus in the city is smaller than if things are going hard for our folks, then the possibility of making a name for Jesus is greater because what the world wants to see is not for you to tell them, uh, Jesus makes things go well for me. They're, they're going well for them too, probably better than for you. And it's money that's doing it and, and it's doctors that are doing it and whatever. So that argument has teeny weeny effectiveness. Rather, when neighbors know 
that the baby in your womb has a liver outside his body and no spinal column. And you've got to carry this baby to the end. And they watch you. The possibilities of making much of Jesus are staggering. So I, I want, not many people see life that way. My job as a preacher is to help that mom way before the pregnancy, way before the pregnancy, get ready for it so that she's got some resources. And one of the most satisfying things in ministry, guys, is to do this long enough so that you get a steady, this is true, you get a steady stream of testimonies that come to you at funerals and in hospitals and other places where a mom or a son or a relative just takes you by the hand and says, so glad we've been at Bethlehem. We'd be insane. We'd be insane if we didn't have a big God. If we didn't have a strong God, if we didn't have a sovereign God, if we didn't have a holy God. I love those testimonies. Amen. You get a lot of mileage of <clears throat> late night work Amen. out of testimonies like that, and they are a pretty common stream. We got a lot of strong women at our church. They bear a lot of things. They, they, they endure pain through marriages and through kids that are disabled in other ways. And I look at them, and like I said, I just like to marry them all and just... I just want to bless. I love strong women. I think they are magnificent testimonies to Christ because, because if they're complementarian, which I hope they are at our church, um, then they, they're combining things the world can't explain. They're combining a sweet, tender, kind, loving, submissive, feminine beauty with this massive steel in their backs. And theology yeah. in their brain, yeah. and and the world. Can, yeah. hmm, don't you you really want to be at that church? John Piper hates women. Don't you know that? John Piper <laughs> hates women. You want to marry them all? <laughs> yeah, you, you know, you've dispelled that with your statements about wanting to marry but, them all. That, There's that, no that, doubt about that. that um, that's, that's really helpful in terms John's, of what you just said. That's really helpful, and I think you need to think of take-home value for pastors here, for all of us, you know, to go back and even look at that differently than we've looked at it before in terms of calling women out to that kind of strength, the right kind of strength. That's sweet. So thank you. Amen. Let me give you a word. This word has served me so well. I saw some of our women sitting over there a few minutes ago, I think. Um, I, hope, I hope this is true for them. But I, I grope in a, a controversial situation concerning complementarianism and egalitarianism, I grope for ways to celebrate yeah. and articulate magnificence yeah. in yeah. women. Yeah. What, what do you really, what do you think that looks like? Because you don't think they should be elders, so you must think they're dumb. Or you don't think they should call the final decisive shots in the marriage, but be responsive and supportive. So what is magnificence here? And one of the words, and let's give you one that has proved to be remarkably uh, vision-giving for me and them, I think, is my goal for the women of our churches is that they become sages. 
It's an unusual word. We all tend to know what it means. It's a Hulda like they streamed to Hulda. She, she was a prophet, but she evidently didn't do public prophetic ministry. They came to her in quiet. I don't know the details, but I, I just want our women to study Wayne Grudem's theology and read my books and read you guys' books and have rich, deep, strong theology, unshakable faith, tender, sweet, kind, supportive, loving uh, hearts towards husband and church. And as they get to be 40, 55, 60, people are streaming to them yeah, for wisdom. True. They're streaming true. to them because they've walked through it's such true. deep water. Women, there are a few here, don't begrudge suffering. You'll become a sage. People will stream to you. Men will seek you out, which will not be inappropriate in the right setting in which they say, I need your help. I need count. I need insight into how to deal with this. And you've walked through 30 years, and you've carried this, and your arm has been lamed, and you've you've loved this husband who's never believed, for, and he's with you, and you're with him, and you've you've had this child who you've now nursed for 35 years, and lives at home with you still, and is got the brain of a two-year-old. Talk to me about perseverance, ma'am. So I just, sage, sage, plead with the Lord to so lead male and female in your church that they all grow up and, and, and give women the vision I could become a sage. Because frankly, one of the reasons I thought of this is because one of the complaints among the 20 and 30 age women is that they don't have sages in their lives. Right. The, the older That's generation true. that I inherited from previous ministries, and I... I can say this now because I think that whole generation is gone, the pastor's dead. And, um, <laughs> they weren't theological. Everything was so thin at this church that I came to, so thin that all the older women are intimidated by the younger women. And the younger women are aggressively inquiring into the meaning of the Bible and, the, and how, how things in the, in the world work and they want to think and they want to know. And, and they want women 30 years older to know as much as they know and teach them a little bit and help them. And th that generation didn't do that. And, and part of it's just circumstance. So I want to raise up a 30-year-out difference. I want, I want the women of our church who are now in their 20s and 30s, when they're 50s, they're not intimidated by anybody. And they're, they're just overflowing with wisdom and strength for the women, especially in the church, the older women discipling the younger women. All right, one, CJ, if I yes. interrupt one more time, yep. on, the, on the issue, again, of taking suffering and helping people to embrace it, for Christ with joy. John's don't waste your cancer if you're not using that in your church. A third of my elders either have or are in remission from cancer. I, I can't tell you how many times I've given that book out. It, it, it's a great way to put the meat on the plate uh, of this discussion on how to train your people in how to approach suffering. Yeah, uh, also recommend How Long, O Lord, by Don Carson, yep. where he says at the outset, all one has to do is live long enough and one will suffer 
And then he argues there that we develop a theology of suffering before one suffering so that that theology sustains us in the midst of suffering. Can I offer one other observation that you just alluded to in terms of your own ministry? And uh, I think there's always a danger in a conference like this that especially for a lot of younger pastors, they think they're going to see this right away. And uh, the reality is that in middle-class America, in the vast majority of America's middle class in terms of just what we're going to meet in terms of expectation, the, the comfort level is going to be very high, the, uh, the apathy level is going to be very high, the theological knowledge level is going to be very low, the passion meter is going to be barely moving when they get there. You know, just encourage them to stay there. You've been 28 years at Bethlehem. It wasn't like that when you got there. Mm-hmm. It wasn't right. like that five years after you were there. That's You've right. had to be there until you're 62 now in order to see this. So encourage us about staying somewhere until yep. the Lord brings yep. pleasure to himself. By making Amen. It happen. Yeah. The Lord Amen. does that. And there are decisions you can make. But my story is one of providences. Providences. I, when I came, I asked the search committee, well, how long do you want me to stay? And, and they said, how long are you willing to stay? I don't know. I was brand new. I'd never been a pastor anywhere else. I don't know. And so they said, 10 years? Would you give us 10 years? I said, I hope so. So that was kind of the dynamic of that moment. No big decision. Life! You know? Um, but... <laughs> But uh, so here's the story. I mean, this this is to celebrate providence, not any shrewd decision. Um, I was six years teaching college Bible, wanting very much during those six years to teach seminary. Wanting, feeling like I want to get near to the front line, but I don't think I'm called to be on the front line in the past. I want to get up close, and and I I didn't get a single invitation to go to any seminary for six years. Okay. My, my buddies did. Wayne Grudem did. John Salehammer did. Uh, they just all left. I went to, and I'm there teaching, you know, 18-year-old blonde Swedes who ask the same questions in every class, thinking, hmm, it's getting old. Uh, so the thought continually enters your mind. If you get a little pastoral experience, they might want you in seminary. That's really dangerous. Do pastoral ministry like a stepping stone. So, on the night of October 14, 1979, after a year's sabbatical, feeling driven toward the church and yet not wanting that motive to be there at all, on that night, I was up till probably 1 a.m. writing nine pages in my journal about my life and my calling and came to the conclusion that if Noel would say yes in the morning, I would resign and seek a church. And it hit me about a week or two later, that thought about stepping on the church toward the seminary never entered my mind that night. That's a miracle. That's all I've been thinking Mm. about. Mm. That was a gift. 
Mm-hmm. Was that partly because you were not satisfied in the teaching? I mean, it wasn't just a positive call to pastoral ministry. Oh, it was total push and pull. It was hard to know which is which. I was getting bored with what I was doing. The students were saying, good job when I gave devotions, not good job about the classes. I thought, that's preaching. And, and then there was a the pull towards the whole... These are real people in the church. They're old, they're young, they got problems. You get the whole range and not this little artificial bubble in, in college. Now, the other pieces of providence are this. As soon as I get on the ground at Bethel, I got five invitations to seminary. Bang, 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 bang. Five different seminaries asked me to consider being friend. Well, it was too late. I can't walk away now. I've only been here a year. And when I've been there long enough to think, now it might work, they didn't call anymore. And here's the second piece of providence. Um, And and if they called today, (laughs) I wouldn't even think about it, you know. I'm not going anywhere. And that's been true for probably 15 years. Um, I I got over that. I really got over the seminary thing. I tasted the real. I tasted the real thing. Just in now. Just in. Just Don't worry. Yeah. Don't worry. Just. This guy's got a yes. ego that's big enough He's to handle that. Talking about right? job. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <coughs> and and who knew that as a means of grace, we have a group of 18-year-olds, blonde Swedes, to thank for all we have received ultimately from your life. Who knew? Thanks to those ladies. One other thing. Yes. One other celebration of Providence. Um, there was a trickle of churches who sought me. Not many. Maybe every six months or a year, somebody might inquire, would I leave Bethlehem and do something different? And God so worked it that those letters never arrived when I was emotionally ready to leave. They only arrived when I was really happy to be there. Isn't that amazing? I mean, God knows how unbelievably fickle and weak I am. So he says, we won't let them ask when he's down. (laughs) We'll only let them ask when he's up. And so I read them, write a little thank you anyway. I'm very happy here. My work's not done. Those don't come anymore either. But the pro- it was providence. But, Al, it, it, really, to, to get at your question, I think one should resolve to stay there a long time. Mm. Especially, and this may not be the right thing to say, especially in urban settings because, or let's put it like this, wherever the people come and go, the pastor shouldn't. Wherever the people never leave, pastors can come and go, and the church doesn't change much. Little little sittings in in the country where nobody ever leaves. Nobody comes, nobody leaves. There's 50 people. They've been the same 50 forever, and their children. uh, They can probably handle pastoral changes. But even there, I don't want to make it sound like, every two years, new pastor, they don't care. You could probably do vastly more for their view of missions and race and, yeah. and Bible exposition yeah. and service than if you leave quick. Yeah. 
All right, one final question. I'm, let's say I'm teaching through Hebrews, trying to draw attention to all the wonderful themes that you brought to our attention. And then in chapter 13, I arrive at verse 17. And how would you teach Hebrews 13, 17 without that verse appearing to be self-serving? This sounds like a softball. Well, that's all I got. <laughs> I mean, it looks like a softball. <laughs> yeah. That's my job here is to serve you with softballs. Where is the friend. book of Hebrews? Oh, there it is. <laughs> Is that right? You couldn't find it? Because that's, that's very encouraging. Yeah. Because I've already had that happen one time, too, when Al wanted a passage, and I, I and couldn't it find the, it in my Bible. Yeah, it was thought, you know, yeah, Don't even know where it is in my Bible. That's pathetic. Back to tabs. I think, I think one of the funniest things is that MacArthur is the only guy with tabs. <laughs> Oh, I didn't notice. I'd have called him you out. You didn't. I noticed. I said, why do you have tabs? You don't know where to find Bible? Bible books? He was sitting up there, just tabs in the Bible. That's weird. Maybe he, bar- maybe, maybe, maybe he borrowed the Bible. Could be. Might have seen an ad on television. <laughs> so what part of this sounds to you like it might be self-serving? I'm a pastor. Yeah. And I'm preaching right. to my congregation. And I'm informing, informing them from verse 17, obey your leaders. Okay. That might appear self-serving. That, that's not a softball. It's I'm the sorry. second half of the verse. It feels like a softball. I thought it had some heat and movement on it. But <laughs> <laughs> um. Let me work toward it from the end of the verse. Can I do that? Because it says, let them do this. Uh, that is the pastors. So let's read the whole thing. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those, the pastors, who will give to, give, uh, who have to give an account. Let them, let the pastors do this, that is, serve you and give an account for you, with joy. And not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So a pastor has to joyfully do his work, or he's of no advantage to the people. The softball that I was really eager to hit out of the park was that this is Christian hedonist pastoral text to the max, because it says... If you don't serve your people with joy, you're of no advantage to them, which means you don't love them, which means you must seek your own joy in the ministry in order to be of use to them, which means you have to pursue your own joy. That would be my sermon, so I'm asking about the first (laughs) first one. All right. (laughs) This is really going astray now. It's it's really important. Excellent point, and I'm sure I'll make it inadequately in just a moment. (laughs) It's... It's Would so... you like to preach, actually? Would you like to preach a second time? I, I, well, this is... I'll just give you the short version. Okay. <coughs> so having, having made clear then that the pastoral ministry is to be done with joy with a view to being advantage to the people, you must... Those people must feel this man lives for our advantage. Amen. 
Right. He's not manipulating us. He's right. not on a power trip here. Right. He's not using this church to get anywhere or do anything. He's living to our advantage. He, yes. He's pouring his life out. We are sheep. He's shepherd. He wants us to be fed well, be protected from wolves, and uh, to be carried and loved when we need to be carried and loved. So then you, 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 you're asking how to preach this. Obey your leaders. I, I say to the people, all human uh, structures that God has ordained have an obedience and submission component. So family, parents, and children obey submit. Marriage, husband and wife obey and submit. Uh, government, be submitted to the government, obey and submit. Employee, employer, uh, this employer can tell you when to get there, and you should submit. And none of that is absolute. Well, these are all relativized by the Lordship of Jesus. So the Lordship of Jesus over family, marriage, church, uh, government, is relativizing the commands that a husband can give and a parent can give and so on. And so in the church as well. So I say to them, uh, I'm, I'm trying to make way for them to hear this hopefully, positively. I am not your God. I am not the Lord in your life. I do, we don't do sect, sect, S-E-C-T. We don't do that here. We, we're, we're not a, a uh, what's the other word? I'm, not sect? Cult. Cult. Thank you. I'm, we're not a cult here so that I, I'm creating my harem or whatever. So once they can relax and say, okay, we really, he looks loving, he looks caring, and he subordinates his own private desires to our good then, then we say to them, and you know that there are elders that God has ordained to be here. The function of elders is authority. That's why women are called not to do that, but other kinds of things. Authority has an echo in the people. It's called obedience here. I don't think that word means absolute. These elders do not have divine authority. Therefore, view us under the Bible. And if we go away from the Bible, don't follow us. And so the Bible and God remains the final authority. But if we're inside the Bible, your demeanor towards us should be blessing and supportive. You, you should like our leadership. And I, I frankly don't think a pastor should preach on that for a few years. I really don't. I don't, I don't think you, ha you have proved that you're a good shepherd for several years. To come into a church and say on the first Sunday, obey me, no. would be no. a terribly yeah. unwise, foolish thing to say because the context in our culture of obedience mm -hmm. won't be there for right. understanding it biblically. Yeah. yeah, and it's in chapter 13. Yeah, in chapter 13, not one. Thank you. Would you pray for us? Mm. Father, I always feel the need to repent, especially after the rough and tumble of panel discussions. And so if, if there are any things that have connoted pride or have connoted self-assurance or the desire to be exalted among men, then just cancel those out. I pray and forgive then wherever we have said anything that accords with your word and is helpful, would you seal it 
to these folks' hearts and minds so that they are able to take it and go deep with you, buy it, and serve their people better with it. We pray for CJ now as he gets ready in the next few minutes to deliver the final word. Would you anoint him and fill him and strengthen him and free him from all self-consciousness about all that's gone before. And may the word that comes out of his mouth be a remarkably suitable way to ignite everything else that has happened here and carry it forward into the ministry. Thank you for these brothers and sisters that have given us such sweet attention. Bless Mm -hmm. them now in their break. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.